Amen. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Um, I wanted to let you guys know, you know, we, we give uh, to Pastor Wilson uh, monthly, but uh, we're, there's going to be a special offering for him today just to go above and beyond what we give him monthly and regularly. Uh, so just make sure if you do give to that, you give in the black box that is in the middle of the double doors on a table. So the silver boxes are general giving, black box. We, we put a, a tag on it that says Pastor Wilson. Um, if you could just drop your offering in there. And if you write a check, just make sure you write Pastor Wilson in the memo line. Uh, that would be super encouraging. If you give online, you can give to the missions fund that we have set up. Uh, you give that way uh, as well, and uh, just encourage. If for some reason you dropped a check in the general offering that you want to go to Pastor Wilson, that you didn't write the memo in, just let uh, Chris Vendora or Wayne Brotherton know. We'll make sure it gets there. Cool? All right. Well, uh, let's go to the study. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you have a Bible, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to keep those. Those are our gift to you. What we've been doing, in case you're dropping in wondering, uh, our study is we love to know this Jesus that you just heard Pastor Wilson speak of. We love that he uh, is just timeless in his truth, in his message, and in his person and work. And so regardless of who you are and how you come in here, we know that he's the remedy for our souls. And so we've been seeing in this particular book. It's a wisdom book. You have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. You have Song of Solomon. You have the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. This guy, Solomon's writing this, and it's really to help us think deeply. It's to help us actually consider truth. So he doesn't really give you a lot of answers in that he gives you questions. And so I say all the time, and I'm going to keep saying it, if you miss his method, you'll miss his entire message. So uh, this was one of the books that frustrated me when I started trekking through the Bible in college, that uh, this guy wasn't really giving me answers. He was giving me questions. But the deeper I read, the deeper I sought in the scriptures, you see continually this beautiful silhouette of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible, including a book like Ecclesiastes. So he basically wants you to read. He wants your soul to get frustrated. And then he wants you to ultimately scream, Jesus, right? Because he wants you to realize he's the hope for all that this writer is pulling out of me to show me the angst, the longing, the draw, the, the desire, the, the wandering appetites of my soul can only be found fully in this Jesus Christ, who is the Christ who came, who the New Testament ultimately talks about his life, his death, his resurrection, and all that he taught, passed on to the church. And so it's been awesome to see. And so um, that's what Ecclesiastes is in short. So in the end, if you want to summarize this book, here's very simply what it's going to say. Um, Evaluate your life under the sun. Now, that phrase is super important, okay, because he says under heaven, under the sun a number of times. He's talking about a life unattached to God, untethered to God, a life where you live that is solely speculation, where you receive no revelation, a a, a life where you live not knowing that God exists or a life living where God does exist. And so understand, he wants you to get over the sun. He wants you to get beyond the Son to the God who made us and incarnated himself under the Son in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you have to see that. You have to read it through that lens, and it'll be really helpful. And so he's basically going to say, as you evaluate your life, understand if you get everything, if you get your New York City career, if you get honor, if you get the, the infinite wisdom, if you get wealth, if you get appeasements, if you get fame, if you get fortune, if you get all those things and you get all those things and not the God who is the giver of all those things, you've totally lost. 
That's what he's laying before you, that you're just chasing the wind, he'll say, over and over and over, that you just have a wandering appetite that you can't appease in of yourself and in what's just given under the sun. So he's sitting you down as a wise grandfather saying, honestly and truthfully, I had more money, enjoyed more pleasure, possessed more wisdom than you ever will, so listen to me. I'm going to teach you the things that I've learned because for me it all ended in tears of a life untethered to God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I think this is true for all of us, right? We believe that that new house, that new gadget, that new toy, that new thing, that new spouse that will somehow validate your existence by that weird fleeting feeling you get when you purchase it or have it. And he's saying existence and meaning isn't validated by your accumulation of things, it's validated by me. And so uh, let's see what he does, because Ecclesiastes is far much more, I said, like a bath than a meal. A lot of people sit down and like, man, feed me some big meaty theology. Well, it is theological, but it's more like a bath. He's trying to scrub you clean of all your illusions you live in, all the sentiments and feelings that aren't reality, and get you to see and hear and understand what's really reality. So that's a great way to read this book, too. He's just trying to scrub you clean of all your false assumptions and what might bring you meaning, joy, and purpose. And um, just know, um, a lot of this has been, because we've been chatting about this during the week, and will be very difficult for many of you and myself. Um, Why? Because joy is on the line. And here's what I know about all of us, that regardless of whether I know you or not, I know that you're serious about joy, because we all are. And know that God is serious about joy, and that's why God has given us his scriptures to see the place that joy can be found. So I want to start with a a quote this morning that I read actually a while back, but I think is really appropriate for this morning, because Solomon continues to do this thing where he finds that nothing that seems to deliver what is promised Like, if you could sum up Ecclesiastes, it's this promise is this, this promise is this, this promise is this, and I tried it all, and I was just more empty, more disgruntled, more frustrated at the end of the day. And so here's going to show us that nothing seems to deliver what's promised. Here's what Woody Allen said in the New York Times. This was uh, during a personal crisis of his, and he actually was asked this question, if you had any interest in religion, do you have any interest in belief, do you have any interest in finding out meaning, because you're suffering right now, so what might be the remedy for that? And he said this, I'm deeply interested in religion. I'm not interested in the ones that we have. I'm not interested in Judaism, Catholicism, or Protestantism. There is a coarse existential curiosity. Why are we here? Is there more? Is there a greater power out there? But these questions are unsolvable and unsatisfying and ultimately depressing. (laughs) Does Woody Allen not speak as a cultural icon? Right? I mean, I don't need belief beyond what I know. I can know by what I taste, hunch, feel, and see, right? Yet God says, no, you can't discern anything unless I come and tell you about it. Like, to know truth, the human brain doesn't have the capacity to somehow learn the existential realities of what's beyond him. He needs that God, if he exists, to come and tell him. So what we're seeing is Solomon's taking this Ecclesiastes culture we live in, the Woody Allens of the world who say, hey, um, I'm good. I'm just going to fight it out through humanism and secularism and existentialism and dualism and monism, all the things we've been discussing the last number of weeks. I'm going to kind of formate my little philosophy and belief system to kind of figure out how to 
work through the pangs of life, and somehow that'll just validate my existence. And Solomon's saying that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He's saying that's like, it's just vanity. That's a life of nonsense. It's like you forming a wind collection. You're going, hey, come over, look at my wind collection. I got fast wind, swirling wind, slow wind, speedy wind. You'd be like, you're nuts. You can't collect wind. He says that's the silliness and the madness of the life that you're trying to live apart from God. So if you come from nowhere and are headed to nowhere, then life here and now is totally and utterly meaningless and have enough intellectual honesty to say that's true. And you can fight it out however way you decide. Now, we believe as Christians that we come from God or headed to God, so life now is deeply meaningful, that there is profound purpose in all that we do. So, look at what Solomon says this morning. He's going to press us in regards to these wandering appetites that we have. Verse 8, chapter 5. We're going to finish out chapter 5. This is what he says. If you see a province in the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. In other words, don't be surprised at injustice. Don't be surprised at unrighteousness. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to, cultivate, to cultivated fields. So Solomon's laying before us the wandering appetites that exist in all of our souls, regardless of who we are across uh, all planes in existence, regardless of where you live. In particular, he's going to get at, starting here, the insatiable longing for wealth to validate your existence. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Um, he lays out the obvious, the oppression and injustice you see, not just from a personal arena. He's going to get to the personal arena, but he starts with the political arena first. And he goes, you just see this in the governmental system. You see the higher working over the lower, all to somehow accumulate wealth. You have communism, right? The state takes control all towards a means of production. You have capitalism, right? That's where a profit's pursued to little regard the well-being of people. Now, we could get into tons of political debates, and this is wrong with Trump, and Democratic, Independent. That's not what he's, he's really trying to get you to see all of this is stemming from something deeper, that you're not going to have a perfect government that rules with a perfect system because they're all driven by the same wandering appetite that you and I are. So even the people in charge are imperfect, fractured, crooked people to borrow Ecclesiastes 2. So you expect crooked people in a crooked world to make a crooked world straight. You're living a illusion. And praise God, we're going to have one King Jesus to come who makes it all straight and all perfect with one kingdom, with one perfect king, with one perfect government that is on his shoulders. But he says, you just see this. You see the wandering appetites. You see the guy on the ninth floor just bothering the guy on the eighth floor, bothers the guy on the seventh floor, right, all the way down to where the person who's the poorest looks for the oppression below him but can't find any, so he's left with naught. So you see this injustice and oppression happening everywhere, even in the best of contexts. And he's saying, I'm going to show you what this is driven by. I remember... Um, I'm sure many of you are, remember the Virginia Tech shooting, uh, the, the evil that happened there back in 2007. And I remember I was two years out of college. My younger brother was attending there at the time. He had, uh, was going there for college. And I remember when I, when I heard on the news about um, the shooter who was uh, shooting at Virginia Tech. And I remember just 
the anxiety of trying to get in touch with my brother and, and, and following just stories of kids who were going to be in that classroom who didn't have, uh, who, who set their alarms and alarms didn't go off and so they were late to class and because they were late, they weren't in that room and um, just the swirling of questions and feelings and my own feelings and talking to him and talking to his friends and here is the, the, the thing I continued to hear and of course wickedness has ensued and has always ensued which is the sadness and the harshness of life that we see in a crooked, broken world. But, but the main question in the news is always pay attention when tragedy hits the question. <laughs> so the question was, and even from a lot of my brother's friends, was how in the world could this happen? Especially at a school like Virginia Tech. Um, what does that mean? Right? I mean, we, we, they train their kids well. They, they get the best and brightest. They... How could it happen there when they seem to have good security and good systems? And how, how in the world could something like that, how could wickedness and evil like that happen? And, and my response um, as I dialogued with people and dialogued with my brother and dialogued with other friends of his was, I think if we look at the Scriptures, the question is going to continue to be, friends, as hard as it is to admit here and now in this world under the sun that we live in is why do things like that not happen more? Because here's the truth. In an Ecclesiastes-like society and culture that says, you're a happenstance, you're here for but a brief time, you're some accident where, man, all these molecules revolved around and there was just enough energy to make this atomic blast with two atoms that came together just at the right time that swarmed around this gaseous ball and somehow, there we go, out of the puddle of mud, formed you. Man, get at it. Enjoy your life. And so when you say to someone and someone hears that, man, I'm just a happenstance that went right and I'm here for a short time, it's I'm going to do whatever I can do, however I can do it to get everything that I can at anyone's expense. And it's just a recipe for the sin that festers in our hearts to brew up in anger and discontentment and rage and longing. And then Romans 1 will show that God eventually says, fine, get at it because you refuse to believe that I am God, that I have the right rule and reign, and you'll see it eventually leads to murder. That these things that happen, God, guys, is not that we need some better system. Because here's the thing that happened after this. After this, I remember the answer that I got was, and these are good things, political change, gun control, better health care, mental health. Those are important things. I'm not denying it, but those are things that we've been saying for hundreds of years. That's nothing new. Listen, we have got to be convinced of, and I mean in the root, bottom place of your soul. We have got to be convinced when the world screams out better politics, we scream Jesus. Like as the world screams better mental health care, yes, but Jesus, Jesus with mental health care. Jesus with appropriate controls. Jesus with, because we have a real, tangible answer. The answer has never been, let the hires somehow transform cultures. And we see this all around it. It drives me nuts. The gospel's always been something that's birthed in the human heart. Us, as his people, as his church, as his saints, the wandering appetites we have are resolved so that we make disciples of other saints, which then make disciples, which transcends cultures. It's 
never worked from the top down. And Solomon's going, that ain't going to change your own longing because they're still wrecked by the same wandering longing. So, so you think by just looking at that and saying, well, if that would be changed, then everything else would be fixed, and you're living an illusion. Government ain't going to change anything. President ain't going to change anything. He'll make human change. God will use him. He'll enact authority despite him. God will work about him. But listen, there's only one saving, reigning, ruling, sovereign God who transforms hearts, that transforms people, that transforms cultures, and that is the people of God infused by the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we say we've got an answer bound up in this beautiful, mysterious work of Jesus Christ, the God who lives over the Son, who came under the Son, to transform us and free us from the fracture of this life. Are we saying that? Or are some of us more about those other things? And I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not saying they're not valid. But I'm saying a lot of times the cart gets way ahead of the horse. And so here Solomon is just graciously reminding us as we see the owned breaking in our soul that this is the breaking in human history. So you can't read Ecclesiastes without screaming, Jesus. About saying, I need him. Solomon says right here, so just look at political establishments. Your hope is not in kings, provinces, government, laws. They have the same wandering appetite you do. There's only one plan. That's right. That's Jesus. Where he will come, there'll be no IRS, there'll be no taxes, there'll be no Republican, Democratic, Independent Party. He will rule and reign over his people forever. So until Jesus' kingdom comes, there's only bureaucracy. And so let's live in anticipation and as the people of God to pray that God might use us more fully. But then he moves from the political to the personal. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but full, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Um, he's discussing something he's continued. To, so if you want to hear more sermons in Ecclesiastes, wealth has been just a theme because he had more wealth than any human being has ever really possessed probably in human history. Uh, he owned, we, we've talked in, in like, you can read First Kings just to read his biography. Uh, he had 35,000 servants. I don't know the last time you had one servant. So, I mean, he feeds hundreds of people. He had kings and queens from provinces coming to ask him for wisdom, ask him for wealth, ask him for uh, just to give him feed back on things, and so um, he lived this type of life. But Solomon is getting at this recurring understanding of the wandering appetite and goes to wealth and says, where money abounds, you'll have a wandering appetite. Where wealth abounds, where, when it's in your sphere of influence, when it's, in, when it's in the place that you live, it'll only exacerbate what's down in there. Because the truth is, when does the ceiling ever lift, guys? You know John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who lived? They asked him this question, hey, John, what was your favorite million that you made? You know what he said? The next million. Like, no, what's the favorite million you've made? The next one. The ceiling's never lifted. You're always hitting the ceiling. It's a mirage, Right? Some of you guys are like, man, if I could just win the lottery. No, you win the lottery, you're like, I got to win the second lottery, right? 
It's just a mirage. It's an illusion. Wealth brings about this feeling that if we could just get there, there's some sort of Eden-like life that we could live in, then we'd finally arrive. And God always says, that ain't coming until he restores it all in full. You ain't going to live in Eden here. Now, you will, tied to Jesus Christ, will have life to the full in the sense of our, our meaning, our value, our help, all of our suffering, all of our identity, all of our trials, all of our tribulations are tied to something that's meaningful, that gives us joy in the here and now. I'm not saying we don't live with deep joy. The Christians would be the happiest people on the planet. I'm saying the Eden-like life you're searching for and wanting won't be found and can't be found until Jesus makes all things new. And so if you're looking for that for validation of your existence, he's saying it's just vanity. You're chasing the proverbial unicorn that you'll never get. If there's anything worse um, than the addiction that wealth can bring, it's the emptiness it leaves, right? Uh, some of us, we don't set our gaze on Jesus. It's on that next car, that next house, that nicer yard. <laughs> If I could just get the debt income ratio right here, <laughs> right? You got all your debits and credits out, budget sheets flying. Work a second job, third job, fourth job. And I'm not talking about caring well for your family. I'm talking about excess. And he's just getting into this understanding that it is just an illusion. We've talked about these things. He's addressed these things as to how big is our house? Do you want a larger one? How nice is your yard? Do you want a nicer one? How smooth is your car? Do you need a smoother one? We'll continue to ask that. That's why every year, right, your car drops like 20% depreciation. You buy it, and then it's like, forget that one. I got the new one with a robot inside that somehow like, you know, you don't have to drive anymore or press the gas, right? I mean, something's always going to come out to where your appetite's going to just grow and grow and grow. We talked last week about this is the pain of the iPhone right? And it's true, and all of us are suckers, because the minute we get the iPhone 5, the iPhone 6, the iPhone 7, the iPhone 8, and they know exactly what they're doing, and they're brilliant. But here's the thing. Um, those things we believe will actually validate our existence. Like, you got to think about that, because here's the truth. Listen, here's the issue. And almost all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we have all bought into the philosophy that to be happy, right, to actually be truly happy, we need more of what we already possess. And it's total madness. So none of us really buy out of need. We buy out of boredom. So we get these things to somehow validate us in the discontented nature of our hearts. And he's saying, man, your appetite's going to wander. You're going to chew on everything until Jesus Christ alone comes in and satisfies the deepest longings of your soul, which is why in the Gospels he uses the imagery of door and bread of life and water that you will never thirst again. That's why he uses that imagery. Because he knows he's bringing with salvation fullness of true life. And he says this interesting thing, how it leaves you spiritually bankrupt because it creates a crowd of dependence and sleepless nights. The wealthier you get, the more annoyed you are and pestered you are by others. Hey, can I borrow that? Hey, can you loan me that? Hey, can I have that? This was Solomon. I mean, he, he lived this life, man. Kings and queens come and go, hey, can I borrow this? Can I have this? And then sleepless nights. You wonder, what do I do with all that I have? How do I manage all my affairs and manage all my people? It's, I need Pepto-Bismol. I need Tums. That's what wealth does to the human soul. 
So we try to band-aid it, and he's just talking about things that are just obvious. Amazing that Solomon, the richest man in the world, had thousands of people to feed, and everyone came to him for something from him, and they never wanted him to spend time with him as a friend. Wealth can isolate. Let's be clear before we continue. The Bible's not against money. God is aggressively after your heart, and he knows where your heart is because he says where your treasure is, there your heart is. So he's not trying to rob from you. He's not trying to change your accounts. He's trying to show you and reveal to you that he's always been about worship. He's always been about getting a hold of your heart, not just your stuff. You're enslaved to your stuff because you're not freeing God. And so here he's just showing us this thing. So listen, the Bible's not against money. It encourages us to steward, to save, to care for others. It says you're worse than a non-believer if you don't care and provide for your family as best as you're able. So these are clear, good, beautiful, gospel-driven realities. We need money to function, survive, help others. Pastor Wilson, right? We want to give generously to him to advance the mission and cause of Jesus Christ. It never speaks poorly of money, just poorly of the love of money. So you don't worship your wealth, you steward your wealth. This is always the breakdown for the Christian. And as soon as you start worshiping your wealth, you're getting off the rails. And then when you start stewarding your wealth, you're getting on the rails. I always say you can usually know almost everything about the heart of a man or woman by looking at their internet history and their bank account. Right? Someone got it. Right? I mean, seriously. What you worship, what you want. Those two things alone will probably, if we could all see our own, it would probably give us a clear indicator of what we worship and love. So Solomon's just saying you're chasing the American dream that is not real. So is wealth, is money, is something, put it in there, your functional savior. That when you feel sad, well, I'll just go buy something because that'll help me not feel sad anymore. Or if I'm angry, I'll just go purchase this so it'll help absolve my anger. Or if something goes wrong, is it okay because in some way wealth will save me? I'm going to say always, there are so many morally neutral things in life. And it's not the issue that those things are intrinsically wicked. Money's not intrinsically evil or wicked. You and I are intrinsically evil and wicked. And so we take all God's good gifts and we pervert them and we use them in ways that God never intended us to use them. And the fundamental exchange that is dysfunctional is that we use God's gifts and we use them to worship ourselves and not God. So as soon as you start doing that, as soon as you start walking in that lane, then you're going to grow in discontentment. You're going to question your meaning and you're going to look for validation in your existence, not in the God who made you, but in the stuff he gave you. And so this is where he's trying to usher our hearts. And look, look what he says next. Wealth is not only weary because we never have enough. It's because you lose it all in the end anyways. Verse 13. Isn't this encouraging so far? Verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb. He shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger." He's saying with with wealth comes weariness. If it's your God and God is not your God, this is all under the sun. This is not a life tethered to God. This is a life untethered to God. So this is our sole God. This is our sole value and meaning of existence. He says if you live this way, wealth is weary, not only because is your wandering appetite never satisfied, but you end up losing it in the end anyways. He says you don't, none of us came down the birth canal with your Nordstrom bag, Sperry's on your feet, Tommy Bahama shirt. Right? No one did it. You came out naked and you're going away naked. You can't take any of it with you. You didn't come into this world with anything. This is Job, right? This echoes the words of Job, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived at the time in human history and as a test to see if he would still love God. He is stripped of everything. And what does he say? Man, well, you know what? I lost everything, but naked I came into the world, naked I left, and hey, I still have him, so praise his name. Or you've got Paul telling Timothy, hey, listen, you came into the world with nothing, so you ain't taking anything out of it. So understand what he is saying, though, is unless you invest in the bank of heaven, it's zero in, zero out. There is a bank to invest in. There is a place that we can, otherwise there is no true meaning, no true value, no true investment. You know, the next time you read an obituary of a wealthy man that passed, remind yourself in that moment you are now more wealthy than he is. He couldn't take it. Now, if we are in Christ, we don't have time for this, and I've preached on this, the idea of us being co-heirs with Christ, that we are inheritance of all that Christ owns. And if you want to know how much he owns, go to Hebrews 1 and see that he owns all that has been made. Because God knows that we love wealth. And he goes, you want to be wealthy? Here you go. You can have everything that exists when you pass from this life to the next. You get to own all that Christ has. The riches of Christ, the Bible will call that. And he's not talking about material. He's talking about spiritual Incredible. I mean, if we would just even drive our heads and hearts into what we're really heirs of, because the wealthiest man on earth who lives apart from Christ, untethered to God, and dies, we know the end for them. Torment, eternal fire, wrath of God, with no hope of salvation, who's lost it all. And the poorest person this side of heaven is the one who's most infinitely rich, for when he passes, he gets it all. It was interesting, yesterday I was playing soccer at uh, a field nearby with Jackson, our four-year-old, and there was this guy working uh, out, just kind of running around, eventually he walked over, we started having a conversation, and I'm always, always nervous about, okay, here it comes, you know, what do you do, pastor, and he's either going to run away, or he's going to stay in one of dialogue, or just kind of look at me weird. That's usually like just the one of three 
you know, context I get. And it turns out this guy loves Jesus, is a Christian. We start talking. And for some reason, if you know this, I'm bad with names. So I, I thought he said his name was Rich. So his name's Frank, not Rich. So we're talking or whatever for a long time. And we get to the end and we're saying uh, goodbye, you know. And I'm with Jackson and he's leaving. And I said, uh, yeah, so... Um, I said, Rich, man, I hope to see you again, and gave him the information of the church because he wasn't gathering anywhere. And uh, he goes, uh, my name's Frank. And I'm like, okay, and he keeps walking, and it was so beautiful. I mean, the guy I just met, and he, he stops, turns around, and he says, however, I am rich, aren't I? Just, and I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a pastor. Right? What are you talking about? And he's trying to drill me deep with a theology that I should get in the middle of a soccer field in Rivervale. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. You just said your name was Frank. Like, you know, just scatter on. And he says, no. He says, you're right, man. I am deeply, profoundly rich. You're right. We're all so rich in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, like, I could not stop thinking about that the remainder of my day yesterday. That was just on my mind. I'm going, man, what a beautiful truth that God in his grace just kind of gave me, getting this guy's name wrong, but just to remember, know what's true about us. Our identity is not in our name. Our identity is not in our wealth. Our identity is not in status. Our identity is in nothing other than we are one with Christ, and we get all that he has. So he's reminding ourselves, you came into this world with nothing, and you're going to leave with nothing. So why are you so concerned about that? Why are you looking for that to validate your existence? And this is why he says it's like living under a dark cloud. This is, where, this is where greed leads, right? The miser usually ends up alone in his misery, living in spiritual darkness. He says, vexed with anxieties. You know, this helps some of us maybe understand our anger more deeply because Solomon's going to say, when you get angry, what's the reason you get angry? Solomon's alluding to a possibility would be, and he'd suggest it's due to your unsatisfied desire and what you want but you can't get. So you just lash out, either at your spouse, at your pastors, at your friends, at your church, at your neighbors. There's this deep well of anger brewing in you, and it just comes out, and you think, well, no, it's because they do this and they do this, when maybe Solomon's suggesting you've got vexation in your heart because you are trying to get something that you can't get outside of God himself. And that always leads to benchmarks of blame and frustration in our Christian life, right? And so here he's just revealing for us what is happening. Jeremiah the prophet, he spoke about this age-old issue. Jeremiah 2, he said, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, that's God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah is saying, you've made God an afterthought. Even Colossians 1 will say he's preeminent, he's higher than anything else, he's wider than anything else. He is the fullness of God in the flesh, in the incarnation. You cannot have anything beyond him, above him, or below him. He is the fullness of all that exists. He is wealth. He is meaning. He is existence. Even though you, you realize that he is that, you've made him an afterthought, and you've gone around, and you're digging up dust, trying to drink from dust, basically, gagging on it when you could have living water that that would fuel you for eternity. It's going, how silly is this that you're hewing out these cisterns that hold no water? They're just broken. 
So you've got these huge cisterns where you say, hey, fill it with Jesus, fill it with his gospel, fill it with his truth, and we take everything else to fill these cisterns. You forget it's cracked on the bottom. They just keep dropping out. And you're so frustrated going, why is my cistern not holding anything? He's going, well, because you're using a broken cistern. God is our cistern that is always full with all that he is in his infinite perfections, which we receive fully in the gospel of grace. So he's just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing us to see this. There isn't a soul in this room who's not guilty of this, right? We've all at some point put God on the bench and hewn out cisterns for us that hold no water. And we're all annoyed by it. We're all pestered by it. And yet we've all done this. And so some of us are still searching for that satisfying drink only to watch it lose steam. But look at the good news, verse 18. I love it. He gives us good news. And he does this periodically in here. He says, verse 18, Behold, I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Okay, now we get the good news. The rat race in itself makes no sense. Just accumulate more possessions for you. Just accumulate more stuff. Just put more of what the world has and what God has given in his gifts in your cistern, thinking that will lead you to fullness of life and satisfaction, right? Keep doing that. That's a rat race, he says. It doesn't lead you anywhere. You're wandering appetites. You just want to gnaw on something different. Once you get all the wealth, you'll gnaw on something else. Once you get your spouse, you'll gnaw on something else. Once you get your boyfriend, girlfriend, relationship, 401k, whatever you get, you'll gnaw on something else. Your appetite is wandering. It's always looking. It's never satisfied. Your soul is restless. He's, he's saying this is a rat race. Now listen, this is, this is the idea. Um, with no certainties and no like uh, design, nothing makes sense. This is like you being, I don't know, a soccer player going out to play soccer. You, you got no places for corner kicks, no outside boundary lines, no goals or anywhere. It would be a waste of time. What is that guy doing with a soccer player? Just running around, kicking the ball into thin hair. All of a sudden you start seeing the boundary lines. And that's where the corner kick goes. That's where the penalty kick goes. That's where the goals go, right? All of a sudden, there are certainties. There's design. There's plans. And now there's clarity. So Solomon's showing you the way that you find meaning in life under the sun is using God's gifts rightly. They're not for you ultimately. They're for his glory and the good of his name. And when you use them that way, you find more fullness of life. And this is in any context you want to put it in, whether it's marriage, work, children, vocation, hobby, possession. You see, and the vexation that occurs is you don't see that it's a gift from God. So that's why you can't rejoice. That's why you find no joy in your life. Now, I'm going to circle back in one second to land the plane, but I have to do something first. Verse 20, he says, notice who keeps you happy. God keeps him occupied with joy. This is precisely, friends, where we get off the rails. God no longer keeps you happy with joy. All that he gave you keeps, tries to keep you happy with joy. 
Now, here's why this is so huge. This is the foolishness that Solomon speaks of, and it's foolishness because of sin. So this foolishness is the alienation that is ingrained in us in original sin from the moment we've been given birth from our mother. And I want to show you something because what he's really doing, until we face the gospel, God does not keep us occupied with joy. His stuff keeps you occupied with joy. Until you come face to face with the living Christ who bought you with his own blood and purchased you for himself and indwells you with his spirit and makes you a co-heir of his, you are not occupied with the joy of God. You're occupied with the joy of what he gives. Okay, so look at what he does. He basically kicks you all the way down to Colossians 1, which wasn't even written yet, where after the promised Jesus comes, he comes, he lives a perfect life for us, he dies the death for us as our substitute for our sin, is in the grave, resurrects, validates that he did it in full, the payment was done, he ascends, gifts his Holy Spirit. Here's what you read about this. He reveals the cure to our madness. Colossians 1, 19. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body, right? God, man, made flesh, Jesus Christ, in his body, by his death. Why? Now so he can present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So, Paul says, hey, shoot back to Ecclesiastes in your Old Testament. Read why you have this wandering appetite. It's this thing called alienation. Now, if you could underline or highlight almost one text in your Testament, it'd be this one, okay? There's not one single text that's given me more freedom and more joy in understanding the broken nature of Mike Reed and the remedy for the madness that was Mike Reed and how he set me before God, pure, holy, and blameless before him. So he says, Mike Reed and all of us are alienated. This is what Solomon's speaking to. What it means is God makes everything, and God has made everything ultimately not for you to enjoy what he made, but point beyond itself to something greater, which is him, the creator. So if you just take his stuff, the food, the wine, the sex, the enjoyments, the work, and you solely find all of your life in those things, and you never find it in the God who gave them to you, that is revealing to you that you're alienated. So even though the stuff has never satisfied you, even though the ceiling is never lifted, even though you're constantly moving, Moving from one thing to the next, you are eternally frustrated until it is resolved in some other way. So he's revealing to you, you're alienated. You can't do anything about that. That is all of us. That's the scriptures teaching. That's the fundamental sin in Genesis 3, the idolatry. I want to be God. I don't want him to rule and reign over me. I decide what goes. I know what is best for me. I know what makes me happy. And he goes, no, you don't. And because of them, thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, we've got original sin and we're all killed by it. And God says, I'm making remedy for your alienated heart. So here's what he's showing you. Here's what happens when you just chase God's stuff and not him. You continue to grow in your madness. And he says that leads you to a very hostile mind. You know what that is? You blame everybody for your wandering appetite. It's everyone's fault but you. It's my job's fault. It's my financial advisor's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my friend's fault. It's this person's fault. 
You blame everybody except yourself owning your hostile mind that was birthed from alienation, which you can't deal with. It's in you. It's what you really want until Jesus illuminates your mind. And here's what's amazing. He says that hostile mind is what leads to your outward actions of sin. It leads to evil deeds. You've now paved the soil in your heart that's ripe to start acting out in aggression and sin. And here is the problem that plagues Christians. What do we do? We start at evil deeds. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to manage that sin, that lust, that desire, that I'm just going to get it under control. And what you're doing is you're mowing your yard, and you clean those weeds off. You go, man, my yard looks awesome for like a week. And then you look outside, and there's more weeds popping up. But, but Paul is showing you, Colossians or Ecclesiastes is getting you to understand this wandering appetite that you can't deal with, which is your alienation. Until you deal with that, your hostile mind will not change, and your outward actions will not change. So, so many of us believe, I'll fix my wandering appetite by just changing my behavior, by just looking more pretty, by giving more, by coming to some other event, by attending church. It's not the basis of your being here. That's the extension of you being renewed and changed. But here he's showing you, man, because you're alienated and because you want to run from God instead of to him and you think that his stuff will satisfy you even though it hasn't and has no hope of doing it, you keep going after it and you run the cycle of madness and we all know we do and the ceiling never lifts. That's all to point you and move you towards the God of the universe who alone satisfies. So listen, if you only deal with your evil deeds and trying to be moral, what will mark you is only benchmarks of blame and frustration. But until you deal with the alienation that you cannot deal with, you'll never be made new. And this is why, thank God, the text didn't stop. You who are alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So Paul shows us, brothers and sisters, how God dealt with our Ecclesiastes 5 heart. You were alienated. You didn't want him. You wanted his stuff. You wanted to find your highest level of joy and fulfillment in your marriage alone, in your job alone, in your 401k alone, in your bank alone, in your friends alone, in your esteem alone, in your family alone, in your fame alone, in your fortune alone, and all that could buy you your identity that was all broken and fractured, not getting you anywhere. He goes, he resolved that fully. Jesus Christ comes as the God-man, made flesh, walks a sinless, perfectly obedient life, not alienated from God, fully God, as his son, fully submissive to the will of God, and he walks all the way to a cross, and when he goes to the cross and takes our sin, he actually consumes your full alienated being. He takes all the alienation that indwelled in you and he consumes the whole thing into himself. Wrath do you because you belittle the name of God who dwells in infinite perfections and say, I don't need him. I need to be my own God and do it myself. He consumes all of that. Here's what's nuts. He kills it, pays it and fully rises, appears to hundreds going, hey, just want to show you I did that. Rises again, ascends to heaven, gifts the Holy Spirit to then show you, listen, this can be made, you can now be made new in my son. Now all of a sudden, 
sudden, when he does that, when you trust him for that, he calls what's a big theological word, regeneration. He regenerates you. He makes you new. He gives you a new mind. He gives you a new heart. And now all of a sudden, the hostility that used to blame others is now pigeonholed because you realize that ain't going to get me anywhere. I need to lean into God. I need to lean into what he has for me. Lean into his truth about me, what I'm already in him. So now all of a sudden, the evil deeds that sprout from the hostile mind begin to diminish, not because you're moral, not because you're better than somebody else, but because God has rescued you, you've been bought by someone new, and alienation is resolved. And you go, praise God. Can I get an amen? Okay, I just, like, it's okay to give feedback. This should encourage you and excite you. I was reading this this week, and I was overjoyed that God led me out of the depressive state my soul was in by the time I got to verse 18 to when he illuminated my mind again to all that I've been given, all that I've been bought by, and all that he did in the work of his son. I'm with you, and I'm here to remind you and remind myself because we will not make it without it. We will not make Monday morning when the onslaught of cultural captivity awaits you. When the onslaught awaits you at 1230. And praise the Lord that we have been given this. So now our wandering appetites are quenched fully in Jesus Christ. So now we've got it fixed from the root up, friends, not branches down, which never works. You can trim branches your whole life. It'll keep growing. You cut the root, it resolves the problem. So many Christians just cut branches, and they never cut the root. They never repent of sin. They never turn to Jesus as their satisfying portion. They turn to other things. Now circling back to Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20, Solomon has basically eliminated all your options and illusions and provides clarity. The answer to a meaningful life under the sun is your appetite being in the full wealth of God, not the full wealth of the world. The full wealth of what God has done in Christ. Remember, there's always a silhouette of Jesus beaming through Ecclesiastes. Only in the gospel. Here's what's so awesome. Only the Christian truly has the power to enjoy wealth and possessions without making them God and enjoying them as gifts. Let's say that again. Only the Christian, only the one who's been freed from his alienated heart, which led to a hostile mind, which produced evil deeds, can actually truly, to the fullest, most appropriate way, enjoy possessions and wealth without making them God and stewarding them as his gifts. Because that is where Solomon will say fullness of life is found because now they don't enslave you, they don't identify you. You realize why they're there. Your work, your marriage, your friends, where God has you, suffering, It's all there to be stewarded, to see more of him, to enjoy more of him, to be captivated by more of him so that you might walk in more fullness of life and not by the lie 
that your wandering appetite led you into. And you're resolved. You're free. So understand, my work, my home, my marriage is all to be used to that end, to steward it, right? For God's glory. My work is not to make me happy or sad. It's to be stewarded for God's glory. (laughs) That God gave me the gift. My possessions are not, my house is not to make me happy or sad. It's to steward for God's glory. Have people in my house eat good meals to point to the God who made us and saves us. Not to boast about something you have or don't have. Anything God gives you. Now you're freed from coveting. You don't need to covet somebody else because of what they have or don't have. <laughs> it's just to be stewarded. You're free now. Some of you are in such deep, dark anger because you've forgotten what you were rescued from and you're trying to fall back to that. You're wandering back to that. So let me just end with these two questions. How have you come to God? Do you come to God honestly? Because that's the way to salvation. Some of you maybe have never come to God honestly, truthfully, repentantly, and said, God, you know what? I've been living foolishly. I'm an, I've been, I'm an alienated man, alienated woman. I love what you've given. I don't like you. I hate you. I don't want you to be God. I want to be my own, and I need to repent of that sin. I see you're revealing to me that that is a pathway to destruction. You're leading to me the only way to life is the sin that breaks me now can be broken in Jesus. And I'm acknowledging it in full. I'm not covering anything up, just saying, you're God, I'm not. I'm just owning it. You know what's right? I don't. You call me to you, submission to you. Your good, pleasing, perfect will, not mine. How have you come to God? Or do you come to him in in contract form? This is so popular, right? Because we all believe we're owed something. So we come to God and say, yeah, okay, God, here's what I'll do. I'll come to you. I'll serve you. I'll attend church. I'll pray. If, then you give your clause. You do this, you do this, you do this. That's contract. God never does contracts. He does covenant solely based on the work of what he does, not what you do. He says, no, I purchase you through Jesus, my son, not through how you act or what you do. It's freely given solely in Jesus. And that creates a man and woman who loves God and lives a holy life, not because they want to look better or appease people, but because it's who they are. They've been made new. The other thing I want to ask is, what are areas you might be digging out wells that don't hold any water? Where is it for you? I don't know. Let the Holy Spirit do some work in your heart right now. That's why I love before we take Lord's Supper, we give a few moments. We give some time. We give some pause because we want you to have a moment of examination. Our culture hates silence. Well, got to get my phone text. I, no, just put the phone away. Like, just sit. Sit in it. Let the Holy Spirit do something. Marinate in his truth and see what he might reveal to you. What wells might you be di- trying to dig out that hold no water? What are you putting your hope in? My hope is that God would restore the broken places, that you'd see that God gives us all that as simply a pathway to something better, Him. Let's ask Him for help. God, thank you that you're a God who deals with our alienated hearts and minds. Thank you that in our wandering appetites, God, you fully satisfy us. Thank you for freeing us from our madness. And help us in our pervasive desire to walk back to our madness. God, this morning, would you preserve those who are yours and would you save more? Would you bring about illumination, repentance of sin? 
that would graft more brothers and sisters into the kingdom of God where they will be made the richest that would live. That money cannot purchase that your son alone purchased in the death and resurrection of his son. Father, I pray for those who um, might be digging in wells that don't satisfy that you'd reveal where those are this morning. That you give them the courage to act appropriately. That you give them the, the joy in you to acknowledge those things and repent of those things and lean back more fully into Jesus Christ. God, would you help others just maybe for the first time honestly come to you? God, I'm tired and I have tirelessly tried to appease my alienation by my wanderings through X, Y, Z. I realize you're good. I realize you're gracious. I might not understand it all, but would you save me? Forgive me of my sin. Make me one with you. I realize I can't deal with my alienation. I have a hostile mind. I have so many evil deeds. God, thank you for revealing the root of all of that. Father, would you help us in this place? Thank you that you haven't left us alone as orphans, but you said you sent your helper, the Holy Spirit of God, to awaken us to these things. God, would you do that right now? It is a futile effort apart from you. God, would you restore the broken places this morning? Would you give joy where there wasn't joy? Would you give assurance where there wasn't assurance? Would you give salvation where there was not salvation? God, as we remember your broken body and shed blood that purchased for us, it says, in by his death, this reconciliation that had to be done because of our alienation, God, would you remind us how sweet and good that news is. In Jesus' name, amen.